Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Roberto Lovato, author of Unforgetting, a Memoir of Family, Migration, Gangs, and Revolution in the Americas, published by HarperCollins in 2020. Roberto Lovato is an educator, journalist, and writer based at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco, California. As a co-founder of Dignidad Literaria, he helped build a movement advocating for equity and literary justice for the more than 60 million Latinx persons left off of bookshelves in the United States and out of the national dialogue. A recipient of a reporting grant from the Pulitzer Center, Lovato has reported on numerous issues, uh, including violence, terrorism, the drug war, and the refugee crisis from Mexico, Venezuela, El Salvador, Dominican Republic, Haiti, France, and the United States, among other countries. His work has been featured in several publications, including the Los Angeles Times, Der Spiegel, and many other national and international outlets. He is also a co-founder of the Central American Studies program at Cal State University, Northridge. Hello, Roberto, and welcome to uh, New Books in Latino Studies. Happy to be with you. Great. Well, I'm super excited to discuss your uh, wonderful memoir and hoping we can begin today by just having you tell us, you know, a little bit about, about yourself personally and professionally. Well, um, on a personal note, I'm the son of Maria Elena and Ramon Lovato, two immigrants from El Salvador, as you can read in the book. And I grew up with a father who was a janitor for United Airlines and a mother who was a maid with higher regency hotels. We were a working class immigrant household. My brother and I, the only ones born here. And I grew up down the street from the projects uh, here in San Francisco and uh, was an at-risk youth, eventually got out of it and went to college and, uh, you know, became aware of my Salvadoran identity and ended up, you know, joining, you know, refugee populations first here in San Francisco and then in El Salvador and seeing the tragedies and the the overcoming that I saw, I decided to do something a little more than just social service and join the opposition to the fascist military dictatorship backed by the U.S. government in the 1980s and 90s. And I was uh, became an urban commando with the FMLN guerrillas. Uh, from there, I went on to, you know, as my bio says, join, um, you know, Central American Studies and become a journalist. And now I've here writing and talking about my book and happy to be here again it's great to have you here um you know the book and and particularly the memoir in in particular i mean as a genre to me is is always fascinating i mean it's both about a personal journey but also it speaks to a much larger experience and subjectivity uh you know for salvadorans and central americans um can you speak about you know how did you decide to write this book? Like, um, what was that process, you know, and that journey like for you? Well, I'd always held this story in me for many years because, you know, as an activist, I've seen, I've crossed over 30 years, I've crossed 2,500 miles and 30 years of war, genocide, um, gang violence, narco violence, government violence. And I've seen mass grave sites. I've been persecuted by death squads, Esquadrones de la Muerte. And, you know, there's a whole lot of uh, journey in, there's a whole lot of sub journeys in my journey. And I decided that I would finally tell my story after I saw a child in one of these immigrant prisons in South Texas in Carnes. Little boy named David and his mom. You know, and these prisons are just awful. You go to them and, You'll meet, you know, boys who have scars on their necks from trying to hang themselves and moms that have 
scars on their wrists from trying to slit their wrists. And those tender little voices telling you, quiero morirme. You know, those hard realities coming from those soft voices moved me to finally spill the beans of actually things I didn't even want to look at because I was reluctant to look at El Salvador having absorbed so much violence in my life and and also, uh, you know, absorbed some violence in my home, which is difficult for many of us to talk about. I experienced violence, humiliation and things in my house, along with love from my father. And I connected to, I connect the secrets of my family to the secrets of El Salvador and the secrets of the United States, because it's a U.S. story, right? And I designed it as a, an under, a series, an underworld journey. And I discovered that I was an underworld creature whose father was, had, you know, my mom's living room and dad's living room had all kinds of pictures of my uh, abuelitas, abuel, abuelos, uh, Tias, tios, cousins, the cousin's dog, the cousin's dog's dog, and, you know, pictures of everybody in the living room, but only one picture of my father's family, Mama Te. And I was like, wow, I grew up with a family secret, but it was normal to have a family secret. I'm sure many listening know what I'm talking about, because we all have family secrets. And so, you know, I became Detective Columbo, wanted to understand this, and I then went to explore the... Uh, secrets, you know, in the underworld, because it's an underworld journey, an underworld journey into the crime, uh, criminal life in the mission here in San Francisco, with that my dad was involved. He used to run guns, and he used to run contraband to El Salvador. Uh, the underworld of immigrants uh, that I that are in my family who are undocumented, and the underworld of immigrants generally that I've followed around the world, in fact, and especially across the northern part of the continent of America, and the underworld of the FMLN guerrillas, the underworlds of the gangs, the underworlds of El Salvador and the death squads, and the underworlds of the United States that funded all the violence and tragedy in El Salvador for almost 90 years. So once I decided to write it, I wrote it as a as an underworld journey, which is kind of, you know, it, it deploys what I would say mythopoetic sensibilities, because I think myth provides a shorthand for civilization to help us understand things in a very efficient way. So I, 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 and I, I felt like it worked quite frankly in the book. It worked for me at least uh, to use the underworld, um, you know, structure, the underworld metaphor, you know, if you will, to, to tell a larger story about this epic of not so much of violence, but of overcoming and what I call the tenderness that survives the terror. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the, um, you know, the, your experience in, in the detention center in Carn City, Texas, and that's the, the first chapter of the book, uh, right? And there's an intro and the, the preface before it, but it, it's kind of one of the sp- spaces where you begin with the book, right? And in that chapter, you start to talk about um, your, your sharing with the mother and the, the son, Right, and I think the the social worker that that you're all that yeah. you're speaking to. Well, she's an scene, activist right? more than a social worker. <laughs> oh, there you go. Right, right. Um, uh, so you're right. So there's that. There's the the activist. There's uh, and then there's the mother and the son that are yeah, David and Elena and my, David and Elena and my and friend is Ursula. Ursula. There you go. Okay, great. And so while you're talking to to them, I, you start discussing about where you're from, right? And you mm-hmm. mentioned where your father's from, Huachapan. Am I pronouncing that yeah, correctly? Awachapan. Awachapan. There we go. Right. And you mentioned, you know, the aspect of, you know, silence that's tied to that place mm-hmm. and tied to, you know, um, your, your own family history. Right. We speak about, you know, how that, you know, creates like a central theme of the, the book, how silence operates throughout the book. Um, and, and the book itself is essentially, right, your effort to combat the silence, right? The, the aspect of unforgetting, recordar, right, is, is to, you know, combat this kind of central experience uh, that's not only in your, in your own personal experience, but you're tying this broadly to, right, the Salvadoran Central American experience. Absolutely. You, you hit it, the nail on the head on that one. I um, wrote the book as a way to... Uh, as an act of what in, in America Latina they call and we call um, memoria historica, historical memory, which is the use of memory uh, to 
afflict the comforted, to pick out those things in memory, because anybody can remember. You can just remember it's picking out a file out of a cabinet, right, in the cabinet of the mind. But to unforget is not just to um, pick a file, but to pick the right file that, uh, that, 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 that the rich and the powerful want us not to bring up. The rich and the powerful, the elites that want us to remain in ignorance about our past. Like you want to cut enslaved people, indigenous people, colonized people. You want to cut them off from their warrior spirit of their of their ancestors, of their tribal ancestors, of their indigenous heritage. And you want them to be allied to the nation state, to be good Americans, quote unquote, or good Mexicans, or in this case, good Salvadorans. So... You know, I came up with the title precisely because of that underworld journey, which uh, unforgetting in Greek uh, is a word called aletheia, which I studied when I was a right wing, actually fascist, born again Christian. (laughs) So, so, you know, I was studying theology and I came across this word that in the Bible, in the Bible, the the right wing Christians were equating with truth. And some liberation theologians also equivalent. Um, equate it with truth, but in its in its in the Greek sense, in the or in its origins, it, it described the journey into the underworld after you died. So the dead would either go to Hades or Elysium, but before going there, the dead had to choose, um, had to go into the river of forgetting, the Lethe River, and so the dead had to forget who they were in life before they could proceed into Hades or Elysium. And so the word for unforgetting is aletheia, not river of forgetting. And so theorists of fascism in the, in the, in the 20th century, like Hannah Arendt, uh, you know, re, uh, resurrected this, this uh, Greek notion of aletheia, of unforgetting, to describe the necessity to um, excavate the memory that helps us understand that 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 does away with the amnesia that fascism needs to exist like we see in I would argue with Donald Trump but also with Barack Obama right because those kids I visited right because you know when you're jailing separating and killing children you're performing a fascist act essentially right mm-hmm. there's no question about that and sadly the person the president that started us on the path to doing this to Honduran Guatemalan and Salvadoran children as, as young as four, five, was Barack Obama. So, you know, but people like to forget that because they want to have a good image, not just of Obama and Michelle Obama, but of the United States. And But my job as a writer is to make you comfortable. It's to tell you what I know to be true and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So I caught on to unforgetting. And I was like, wow, that's a great concept to describe this journey I took across all these underworlds that were hidden, including the underworld of me being in the gorillas that I'd hidden from myself and from others for 30 years. I was in the closet about having been an ex-guerrillero because I wanted to get a job as a journalist. I didn't think they would hire me. And so, and, 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 and it turns out when we do, when we forget things, we often forget some of the best parts of ourselves, not just the painful stuff. And that happened to me with my, my journey as a, as a, as a rebel which I associate with one of the best parts of me that, you know, is, 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 is giving unto others uh, beyond myself. You know, um, I th- you mentioned earlier, right, that we all kind of have like family secrets, right? Um, help us to understand, I mean, what is it like, right? So there's these silences that operate for all of us, both, I think, individually, like personally, right, and in our families. Mm-hmm. But Help us understand how, you know, the, you know, a state-sanctioned effort, right, to forget, to erase history, right, which is what your family specifically encountered, right, mm-hmm. that leads to the silences that you start to notice as a child, right, that that leads you on this journey. Help us to understand that, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take the example of somebody like my dad, grows up in uh, Great Depression, El Salvador, that makes John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath look like a pizza, uh, a wine festival, right? So, you know, my dad grew up in the most absolute abject poverty imaginable in the Western Hemisphere, in the countryside and in the city of San Salvador. He grew up, uh, his first job, like as a nine-year-old, was being the guy who was helping prostitutes' clients while the, the sex workers 
were with their clients because he grew up surrounded in all the 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 units in his shanty town that he grew up in with my abuelita mamate they were all sex workers and they were my friends my grandmother and my dad's friends so my dad uh unbeknownst to me throughout my life had actually witnessed what scholars like a guy named Anders Sandberg at Oxford University told me is the probably the single most violent episode, not just in Salvadoran history or Central American history or even Latin American history, but in world history in terms of the numbers of people killed per day, per week, in a concentrated space and time. Uh, it's called La Matanza in El Salvador in 1932. Something on the order of 10 to 20, 30, maybe 50,000 people were killed by their own government. The records of this slaughter were completely erased. You can, recent polls of Salvadorans show that 75% don't even know what it, what happened. And, and so it's kind of like Salvadorans in this way are kind of like Jews in terms of being exposed to genocide and, and extreme violence. But unlike Jews in the United States, for example, there are no Holocaust museums for La Matanza. There are no textbooks to tell you about La Matanza. And there are no uh, movies, like there's no uh, Rodriguez's list, like Schindler's list, right? There's simply silence. And that silence carried forth in my father, who saw this, but never said anything for 75 years. So imagine a sight on oh, 65 years. I'm sorry. Imagine the pain and suffering and terror of someone who can't say anything about something for 65 years. Right. Because your father was nine years old when this happened. Exactly. It happened in his town. In right. his I mean, town. Yeah. One of the sites, one of the main sites was his hometown. So I, as an adult, as a, as a young person, I didn't understand why I did. Let me just be frank. The crazy shit that I did as a kid whether it was joining a clique and robbing people, stealing cars, dealing drugs and fighting a lot, um, or whether it was as a, when I joined the, the urban commandos of the, of the FMLN, there was, I never knew why I did this stuff exactly. I just knew I wanted to do it and that I liked to do it. I mean, I didn't like it after you get exposed to the first taste of terror, but you know, you're a kid and you don't know any better. So, I, um, you know, I did these things never knowing it until I start realizing like, hey, my dad kind of, I, I started teaching in Central American Studies and, re, and teaching about La Matanza and learning more about it and realizing, hey, man, my dad's hometown is like one of the major centers of this. He never said anything about this. So I, 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 I over time, I approached him. I find a way to loosen him up. And sure enough, the piñata of my father gave up the candies of memory. And... And there, and he ends up starting to cry along with giving up these 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 candies of memory. He starts crying in ways I never saw him before, and we both started crying because he managed to cut loose from this silence he held in his heart, and I managed to realize, shit, this is why I was such a crazy dude as a kid, and why I'm still kind of crazy to be frank. But you know, um, but but in a good way, I would I like to think. And so, these this is an example of the way that silences that are sanctioned by the state, whether it's the Salvadoran military dictatorship that began in 32 after La Matanza or the, all the killing the dictatorship did from 1932 until 1989 when El Salvador became, with the help of the United States, the longest standing military dictatorship in America Latina. And so, or whether it's the silences that the United States doesn't, you know, not only does Barack Obama, the one who starts caging, killing, and separating thousands of 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 Cent Central American um, uh, children, but the United States has a whole history underneath, behind the eyeballs of the mother and the child that I visit, and that's kind of the story I'm telling. Is there's such a far more deeper history than we're getting that it needs to be told in a different way, which is why you have me telling my story as a memoir, which I never thought I would do. And then telling it in a way, as you, as those of you who that will read the book, telling it as what's known as a braided narrative, where I jump back and forth across time and space throughout the book. 
And so, I mean, if you look at that, that's also the kind of, when you, when you write a memoir, you're kind of making a commentary on the nature of memory. And I'm trying to show the way that my commentary is, um, is that memory in its essence is fragmented, but it's especially fragmented when it's uh, mediated by extreme violence. And violence causes what people call trauma. I don't like to overuse that word because everybody and their grandmother seems to, you know, talk about their trauma. And it gets really disturbing how cheaply people use it sometimes. Um, so, you know, the, the way that violence and, and erasure fragments our memory and therefore fragments us from ourselves and from our history is a big point of the book. I mean, it's not about the violence. It's more, like I said, it's about the tenderness that overcomes the terror because in the tenderness is the vulnerability we need to actually remember who we actually are. I appreciate you mentioning how, you know, your, your, your strategy here, the organization of the book, right? You, you phrase it a braided narrative. And I appreciate you using that phrase. It's a phrase I wasn't um, familiar with um, not being a literary scholar, uh, you know, in, in studying that, but it's something which I talked about with my students as we read your book, uh, recently of, you know, how you are jumping back and forth between place and time. And, you know, the, you, you, you use your, you know, your, I said, you start in, you know, Carn City, Texas, as we already discussed, but then you go back in time, right? You go back in time to your father's childhood, and then you jump to your childhood. And it seems that the narrative follows, you know, your, your father's maturation from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, as well as yours, right? Those are like the, the, the time periods that you're jumping back and forth between, as well as, you know, the spaces are, you know, the town, uh, the kind of migration journey that your father grows up in, as well as your own. Um, can you speak more about how, you know, that itself, you know, not just your, your own personal journey, but this is reflective. What is it, How is this more reflective of, again, um, I think the Salvadoran, right, and Central American experience? Uh, I mean, because that was startling for me, you know, to... to to see, I mean, the the city that you grow up in, right, and the cities that you are connected to in this this storyline, right, the Mission District of San Francisco, right, and uh, um, you know, um, L.A. L.A. Pico Pico Union, right, etc., mm -hmm. right. I mean, these are those are the, the those are the epicenters of Salvadoran migration, right, in the United mm -hmm. States, and they remain so to this day. Uh, and also, I mean, that connection between, I mean, your father's own hometown, his journey, it, it just. It's it's amazing to me how personal this is, but also again how this speaks to such a much larger subjectivity. I mean, my, my real point, one of my main points in the book is how what we call the epic is always kind of like a bunch of casino chips of the intimate, <laughs> right? I mean, the wealth of a, an epic, whether it's an epic love story uh, or an epic story of violence, it's got to have a be made up of a bunch of intimate chips. I, I hate to use casino chips, but you know, my family like to gamble. You know, I just, I like that image of casino chips, you know, cause it's the wealth of memory of intimate memory that makes up the epic story. And I didn't realize this was actually an epic story until after I'd written it. And I'd actually lived through this stuff. So, so like, wow, man, that was, people are saying, Hey man, that's a pretty epic journey around there. You know, 90 years of your family history, genocide, war, gang violence and and I just lived it. I didn't know I was kind of doing this epic thing. So um I don't but I don't like to say it's my story and my family's story and 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 if it's taken on uh, meanings for other Salvadorans I, I I mean that is one of my intentions for people to see themselves in in some form. You know, those of us that are born here of Lat, you know of our children of Latin America what Jose Martí called the continent of light. El continente de la luz. You know, those of us from here that are living here and are connected down there, you know, we have these issues of stuff we've inherited that is bordered off from us literally and culturally and legally and psychically, right? We're, we're bordered off from the origins of our pain in many cases, especially when with the children or the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of migrants from America Latina. And any, whatever you're from, I mean, that's just a, I think it's kind of a common story where people migrate and they're cut off from, from things, including their, the, the understanding that they can have as to why they feel things like what the poet Roque Dalton called medio muertos, half dead, mm -hmm. right? Because he said that we were all born half dead in 1932. 
And I didn't understand what that meant when I heard it. I didn't understand the poem, but I under, I, I, I kind of liked that phrase because it felt real to me because I kind of felt half dead as a kid. And I didn't know why. And I went out to do all this crazy stuff. And then as an adult, I come to realize, oh, wow, that's why. And so the book became a journey from being, say, half dead and ignorant to being more conscious and more fully alive as an adult now. And I would like to think that, you know, that could be something that not just Salvadorans or Central Americans, but anybody that reads. Because, you know, I, I, I consciously wrote this as, quite frankly, as a blueprint for apocalyptic times, how to navigate apocalyptic times. You know, I've, you know, I've, I've been in war. I've covered extreme violence among gangs. I've gone to, you know, 2,500 miles. I've been, you know, dealing, I've had to deal with narco killers gang killers, death squad operatives, mass grave sites, and all the horrific things you can imagine that war and all and gang violence and other violence bring, I've been exposed to it. And I, you know, like I said, later on, I realized God, it was an epic. So I, 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 I did write it with a mind to like say, all right, here's the Jedi knowledge of what I know about apocalypse. Because people that study like what the literature of the of of what we call the apocalyptic literature of the Jewish tradition that became a Christian tradition, right? The apocalypse. That the people that some of the people like Anathia Poitier Young, who I actually talked to, a, a theologian, told me that she had to study two countries to understand the conditions under which the apocalyptic literature was written. One of them was Argentina. The other one was, take a guess, El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, I'm like, God damn, I know more about apocalypse than I than I realize. And so I'm like, okay, well, I got to, uh, my mission in the book is to drop as much whatever wisdom comes from, I hate to ascribe wisdom to violence, but if you survive it, you do get, and you serve, and you manage to become a healthy person anyway, then you've got some wisdom. And we're going to need lots of wisdom to navigate this current moment of, intersecting crisis that is nothing short of epic, right? And it's going to continue. We're going to continue in crisis for the foreseeable lifetimes. So I've written something that for me is a spiritual guide, kind of told as though through my life of why I don't have a bullet in my head, for example. Because I've, I've had the desire to take myself out in the past. I don't have that anymore. So how did I get there? How can that help others? It's kind of one of my big intentions in the book. Yeah. You mentioned the phrase half dead, and that's something that comes up in the book uh, 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 several times. And I'm wondering, is, is that tied? When I kept reading that, reading that I, I re- would think back to this experience you share, um, you know, where you're, I think you're sitting on like the front porch or, or step of your, your apartment, your, your home, right? In the Mission District in, in San Francisco with your father. And you 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 drum up the courage, right, to ask him why there's essentially no pictures of his family on the wall except for his mother, right? And and his response to you at that time is, and you're kind of like seeing this as a as, as a as a great moment for the two of you. And he just like coldly, almost like cold heartedly, as you explain it in the book, turns to you and says, "We're never going to talk about this again. Like you don't ever bring this up again." He he didn't even answer the question, right? He just said we're not going there. We are never going to go there. And like this crushed you. I mean, so in, in referring to this experience of being half dead, it, you know, is that tied to the, you know, the not knowing that part of your family history is, is that, you know, where you're, um, you know, bringing in that connection I to think, what that felt yeah. like for you growing up, you know, being half dead? In the Salvadoran context, it it has to do with, like, I've I've made a study of the families of like different survivors of genocide. Like when we created Central American Studies, I studied very closely and I, I spoke with uh, with some frequency to, to some of the people that created Jewish studies at Northridge and other, and other programs, right? I wanted to understand the way that um, scholars took the uh, experience of extreme violence like genocide and transform, you know, and turned it into... Uh, an intellectual pursuit, whether through political science, psychology, history, and uh, arts, you know, 
literature, etc., uh, like Primo Levi, you know, great writer, or you know, Idalo Calvino, who another great writer. So, um, yeah, I wanted to. I wanted uh, so so in in trying to understand uh, that um, half deadness refers to the feeling that we get as a result of the violence in El Salvador as survivors, as family that has an umbilical connection, as individuals that have an umbilical connection to uh, genocide and extreme violence, even to this day, right? Like if you look at El Salvador when I'm there in 2015, it's the very moment it becomes the most violent country on earth in terms of homicides, surpassed only by wartime Syria at the time. So, and you're talking like there's no war in El Salvador in 2015. It's the gang violence and the government violence. We often forget governments, by the way, when we talk about gang violence. So, um, you know, but yeah, you, you know, I think half dead also can be applied to people in the United States. My, my U.S. side, my U.S. side was half dead because I had no idea. I was cut off from the truth that the United States funded genocide, mass murder, caging, separating, killing of Central American Salvadoran children for 90, more than 90 years. And it's still doing it in different ways and funding police that are murderers, funding militaries that are murderers. And this is just tiny little El Salvador. But then if you look at the scale of it, like across the Americas and across the world, you have Guatemala, you have Nicaragua, you know, uh, Honduras, Colombia, look at Mexico. Mexico that I knew growing up was not a, a, a carpet of mass graves that it's become. Thousands of mass graves, many of them dug and filled with dead bodies by their own Mexican government that's supported by the U.S. that began with George Bush and that really accelerated under Barack Obama. But you didn't get that in your news. So Mexicans are going to start feeling half dead more and more, right, because of the mass killing in Mexico whether it's through narcos or government violence, you're still exposed to that feeling. And I, I would hope people can read my book and take some some sense of what that feeling and identify it and the ways to overcome it. Because you have to go into the dark. You have to go into the pain to overcome what the pain is silently doing to you anyway. So when you try to ignore, when you ignore something like that, you make it stronger, right? When you repress it. It's, a, it's a, like an iron rule of psychology. That which you resist gets stronger. So I kind of did a judo move on, on, on my pain and on my darkness. And I, you know, I dived head first in writing this book. And I, one of the wisest things I did, because I wouldn't just recommend anybody just dive into your, your horrific, your horror stories of your past, but do it carefully. Do it smartly. Do it de una manera preparada. You got to prepare. So... One of the wisest things I did in writing the book was actually retaining a therapist before I embarked on the journey because I knew I was going to open up the Pandora's box, not just of my violence uh, that I witnessed and experienced in the mission here in San Francisco or in L.A. or the violence of the war and, 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 and or the violence of the gangs and all this violence that I've witnessed or experienced, but also the violence that I didn't even know I inherited. So retaining a therapist helped me map out the emotional terrain of my life that I was going to be telling in the story. And it, it really was one of the wiser things my dumb ass has done. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you bringing that up because it makes me you know, want to have you, hear you talk about what are the other things that you did to, you know, prepare to write this book and, and, and who informed you? I mean, a lot of this is your personal journey, but, um, you know, th there's a lot more than just uh, personal knowledge here, right? I mean, you, you've mentioned that a lot of this, since so much of this history was, you know, kept from you and hidden from you, um, you know, who else did you speak with? Who else did you consult with, right, um, as you prepared to write this book? I talked to all kinds of family members, I talked to neighbors, I talked to friends of family, I talked to people in El Salvador in different places I went, people that were ex-guerrilla with me. And then I, you know, I expanded it to include journalists, historians, political scientists, novelists, poets, um, you know, scholars of Salvadoran 
life, but also scholars of U.S. policing. Because I make connections, as you know, in the book between, say, the kind of policing that Black Lives Matter is fighting and the policing and militarization of El Salvador. Because the U.S. sent trainers to El Salvador to then, um, you know, to train death squads and, and military. And then where did those trainers go after the war? They went to San Francisco, L.A., New York, Portland to train police forces in counterinsurgency which is where you start getting these police uniforms becoming these from being these very thin uniforms to being RoboCop that we have today, right? With camouflage and heavy vehicles and, you know, semi-automatic weapons and grenades and all kinds of things designed for war brought into the inner city by pretty much every president since Ronald Reagan, right? As you had this militarization of police that went on, it got especially strong with Obama, who actually sent people like the Border Patrol to go train at a place called the School of the Americas, which which was a training center for the worst mass murders in Latin American history, like Augusto Pinochet or the founder of the death squads in El Salvador, Roberto Dabuison. So to come up with all these connections that I made, I had to interview ex-cops. I interviewed historians of policing in L.A. uh, and other parts. I read a lot of books. I interviewed ex-military people. I researched, you know, I even went to West Point, you know, to do research. And I talked to like these really inflated eagles of these military strategists who are cowards in uniform that, you know, helped, you know, train what right wing fascists believe was a successful U.S. military engagement in El Salvador by training death squads to kill, you know, children, women and elderly people in towns like El Mosote, where, um, on in December 1981, about a thousand people were killed. Half of them were under 12. Half of those kids under 12 were under six. And the leaders of that operation were trained at the School of the Americas. Ten of like 12 of them were trained at the School of the Americas. So I go into these archives to, you know, kind of uh, research stuff that that is not easy to find. I went to forensics labs in El Salvador where the bones of young children killed today by the gangs, right? Because a lot of the gangs are kids and killing each other are next to the bones of children from El Mosote from 1981 that they're still excavating and trying to figure out what happened. So that's kind of the, the mass graves of El Salvador, the forensic slabs of El Salvador, the layering of bones, literally, is the way to, we have to go into there that darkness to find out who's who, what bones belong to who, and, you know, who did what? And so we are barely solving some of the cri- crimes against humanity of the war. Uh, and, and we're wondering why violence continues today. Well, you, you've forgotten, you have amnesia about mass, mass murder and genocide. So, you know, I interview forensic specialists. I interview cops. You know, I interview death squad cops and death squad operatives. So I, you know, I, I connect all these dots across, you know, it took me like five years, uh, about a year and a half of research and then three years of writing to put it all together. And that's why I had, there's like three dominant metaphors in my book. One is the machete, right? The machete, which cuts up our memory, right? It's a, and it's a very common thing for Salvadorans to have a machete in a formerly agricultural society. And people, you know, my dad had him in the living room. And the machete is a perfect metaphor to cut up memory, like the way it's cut up by violence. And then the other metaphor is forensics, the way forensics take literally takes the bones of our memory and pieces them back together so that the forensics labs can not just figure out the truth, but then give the bones, the completed bones of their loved ones to people who are whose lives have stopped because they don't know what happened to their son, their daughter, their mother, their father. And so when you give the bones to those victims, I've seen those entregas of bones. It's a it's a tragic but beautiful thing at the same time because those families start to have some closure. So I, I make a parallel between the forensics work and my my grandmother, Mama Tay, sewing. Because my grandmother would sew the disparate pieces of cloth to create dresses for women and men and boys whose lives were are erased and hidden behind 
words like puta, prostitute, indio, Indian, which is a racist way to say indigenous person, or gang member, pandillero. You know, all these labels hide the humanity. And my, my grandmother would give people clothes that were tailored to their desires and kind of as a way, and I saw that as a way of giving humanity back in the same way that the forensics labs give humanity back from memories, people with memories that have been chopped up with a machete. Yeah, that metaphor struck me right from the beginning. You know, the, you mentioned as the machete of memory. Uh, and then the other one you just mentioned, I mean, the, the layering of bones uh, of you know, the victims of state-sanctioned mass violence. I mean, in 1932, as you describe, and, and all the way into the Civil War, I mean, it's indigenous people, right? It's, um, these are these are laborers that are working, right, on on, on coffee, um, you know, essentially plantations, you know. Um, so those are the victims, right? And these bones are all layered kind of in the same gravesite, but then you draw the, the the connection to today that those bones today that are on top of right the, the previous math deaths are of youth of, of young gang members maras uh, uh, right well, and you skipped one though you skipped the bones of the eighty thousand some of the, the eighty thousand people killed in the eighties and nineties in the civil war right yes right. yes so right and I mean it, it's just it's such a striking image you paint in the book when when you realize that you know the forensic labs are excavating these graves that have bones from all these different periods and the question I wanted to get to here which was a a another key and surprising for me at least element in the book uh, in a very positive way was you know your sincere effort to try to understand young Salvadoran gang members right can you Explain that, right? Because as you you bring up in the, in, in the front of the book, right, the beginning, and anybody that watches the news, right, if Salvador is mentioned, you know, it's shortly thereafter is followed by, uh, you know, the words gangs and violence, right? And you take on this sincere journey, which is a key part of this book, to try to understand what drives these young people, right, into, you know, gangs. Yeah, so I how mean, is this all connected? Well, the gangs are, are, are Salvadoreño. People would try to deny it. They... You know, something like 35% of the Salvadoran population supports exterminating the gangs as a way to solve, you know, the issues of violence in gangs. So, I mean, 35% of the population of El Salvador has some fascist inclinations, and quite frankly, because that's not how you solve these problems that are created from poverty and created by history. I mean, a gang member is nothing if not a walking, talking, sometimes shooting gang banging um walking trauma right unresolved trauma and so you know we, we we have to get beyond these labels and i knew that well whether even the label of refugee those are actual human beings who have a history you know and what's the history that make that make we all have history and what's the history that makes us so the, the layering of those bones is one way to help people understand how deep the rabbit hole of violence, not just in El Salvador, but of the United States, right? Because remember, the, those, those bones include people killed by the military dictatorship from 1932 forward. They contain the bones, the boxes, literally boxes in, in this place called the bone room in the forensics lab, has the box, have the boxes of people killed during the war the boxes of young gang members killed today or in their victims. And these are the ones that are unclaimed, right? That, that are anonymous or un, unsolved because there's so much, they don't have enough resources to solve all these crimes. Like 90% of or more of homicides today don't go investigated. Most of the mass graves haven't been dug. So then you got the bones of those groups. And then you have the bones of the people that are found from El Salvador all the way to Texas in a town that I went to, like Brooks County, where for where instead of having forensics labs deal with it, the justice of the peace in these little towns, you know, like Palpurrias in Texas, would just take the bones of women and children found, you know, in Texas and put them in plastic bags, not just the bones, but the remains, put them in plastic bags and milk cartons and dump them in mass graves that... Funeral parlors then manage for them and put up, say, anonymous on these plaques. 
the saddest thing you'll ever see. And so, I mean, there's I draw the line, the bones that run from 1930s in Salvador all the way to present-day United States, Texas, Arizona. And those are the bones of our forgotten memory that we need not to forget if we're to rescue our humanity, not just as individuals or as families, but as countries. So like the story of El Salvador, is a, is, it's got genocide in it, and it's got mass murder, but the Nazis in the story are not just the Salvadoran government. Unfortunately, the Nazis in this story were supported by the United States. The United States wasn't fighting Nazis in El Salvador. It was backing, giving them guns, protecting them, lying about them, training their death squads, etc. And so, you know, this idea, I mean, the good thing about Donald Trump is he exposes nakedly what the United States is in that way. That part of the United States, the fascistic part of the United States is clear in in Donald Trump in ways that it's obfuscated and hidden under somebody like Obama who will smile and si se puede you while continuing to cage, separate, kill Central American children and provide weapons to murderous governments of El Salvador, Mexico, etc. I was. I want to stay with the uh, on us discussing, you know, the the youth of El Salvador, mm-hmm. right, and and you know the Maras, um, because I mean your challenge, right, for us to um, see the humanity in people, I think is, if you can see the humanity in in a gangbanger, right, um, that's an incredible obstacle for most people, whether people listening to this have an experience, right, of course, with El Salvador or not. I mean, we understand, uh, you know, how gangs and gang members are represented in the United States, the type of policing practices that are enacted against them, right? Um, and I was wondering if you could share with us kind of more of the, the eye-opening moments you had on your journey, right, in, in your reporting as you're, you know, traveling to El Salvador and you're, you're meeting with, right, members of, you know, MS-13 and 18th Street, etc., both of which gangs, of course, come from the United States, uh, right, as, as you describe and people, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about what, give us a, give me an, an example or two of where in speaking with, uh, you know, these, uh, again, youth and, you know, some of them, of course, are adults, but that really opened your eyes, you know, to, their humanity and this this crisis of the gang sanctioned you know violence and mass murder against them. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand, right? That the you know the their their police death squads in El Salvador that go out and indiscriminately kill young people that they associate with being gangbangers and exterminating their bodies. Yeah, they're exterminating them and they're throwing them in these mass graves, right? So that's I mean that's the mindset of the police force. And you had to fight against I mean not just that Salvadoran context, you had to fight against I mean, your own experience, right, right, uh, you know, as, you know, a, a Salvadoran American kid growing up in an urban city, seeing the policing practices, seeing how criminal youth are criminalized, seeing, you know, how the police departments have been militarized over time. So, again, share share something about that with us, you know, that really yeah. opened my eyes. I mean, the, the, one of the, the, the first kid I saw who was at risk and violent and robbing people, you know, beating people up dealing drugs, getting into a lot of fights, uh, had his father pull a gun on his chest. I mean, this kid named Tito. That's what they called him, the kid named Tito. That kid was me. (laughs) So I didn't have to go far. We had a little clique. It wasn't like a hardcore gang like today. But we had our little clique. It was called Los Originales, and not very original name. But, but you know... uh, we did all this stuff, not everything, like these kids now are really hardcore. Uh, we weren't as hardcore. We were just kind of loose-knit, but um, we're talking about in the 80s, in se- you know, late 70s, 80s. So um, it was me. So then when I'm going around, and this part of my point in the book is I, you know, I'm not just some some white journalist with no organic connection to El Salvador, right? I'm Salvadoreño parents. I grew up in the city working class, and I have a background in my own history, my own psychology. And you had visited El Salvador plenty of times, right? Visiting family, right. and I growing saw, up. I saw the war. I saw what preceded the war, and I eventually became engaged in the war, and I saw the children of war. So I don't see this in the news reports from all these white journalists or any other journalists really hardly because not that many have the experience that I have with relation to El Salvador. 
right? So I'm like, I felt the burden of my experience and I wanted to share it. And so I take the reader on the journey first by going into my own heart of darkness, quote unquote, right? Which is the kind of the frame, the colonial narrative that they give us. People like Joan Didion, right? Who says, terror is the given of the place. My point in my book is, oh, yeah, there's terror, but, you know, you, 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 Joan Didion, concluded that after fucking two weeks, mostly at the embassy of El Salvador, of the United States. Imagine what I feel like in 57 years of this stuff, being connected to it from birth. So from 57 years of this, I concluded, yeah, there's terror, but there's also love. Love is also the given of the place and of the people. And that's kind of a big point of mine, like kind of paralleling the forensics and the sewing that my th- my Willita did, my writing, my journey, is to sh- is to show that. And I do it in the case of gangs, for example, who are the primary symbol of Salvadorans in the world. So if we're going to rescue Salvadoran identity, however, we have to rescue the identity of gangs from the myths of monstrosity that they're given to them. So I go and I just do my thing. I show them they're not so different from me. They're not so different from you. They're not. I interviewed this gang member, Santiago, who's at the very top of the killing chain. He's like one of a handful of people in the world who speak for 70,000 gang members on both sides. He's like a gang diplomat. I go to a secret hideout and we talk and he's got this book on the table. It's the Hunger Games. And it's like, you know, it's kind of like those, 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 those kind of tan white ladies in you know, near Cordonisa's Park in Berkeley, where I used to live, you know, they put up art books on the table so you start a conversation starter. So this top-level gang member puts the Hunger Games on there as a conversation starter, and I bought the bait, and he starts proceeds to show me that he knows about the Iliad and Homer, that he loves Romeo and Juliet and Shakespeare, that he's read Galliano, that he's read Gabriel Garcia Marquez, that he understands politics and strategy and negotiation with the Salvadoran government. A brilliant guy. And I ended up, you know, like, well, I show people, look, that's what happened to me. I was expecting to talk to him about the gang negotiations, the death squads pursuing them, the killing they do. Why does a kid become a gang member? Ended up talking a lot about literature with this guy and, and showing like, well, you know, he's not so different from me. And so he's not so different from you, reader. You know, except, you know, you, 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 you you dealt with your poverty if you had it in a different way. But like you, this killer loves literature. And you can't deny that. He's smart. You know, he's a killer, but he's smart. And he's got a complex identity, just like we all do. And so, like, you know, I also just indirectly want to show how useless these ideas of good and evil that Christianity or Judaism or all these other religions give us. They're not very useful, these, these infantile ideas of good and evil. That you see in Marvel Comics, for example. You know, good guys are blonde and, you know, exert violence against bad guys that are darker that exert violence, right? That's such an old trope. It's dead. We have to kill that trope, right, to save our humanity from these simplistic ideas. That's kind of what I want to show in the case of Salvadoreños. It's not just, like I say, it's not just about Salvadoreños. It's also about the United States. You know, this idea of a city on a hill, America the Great, you know, America, this shining city on a hill that shines forth human rights to the world. Well, you know, El Salvador shows that is complete and unadulterated, and I hope your censors don't get us for this <laughs> bullshit. Okay. Right. So oh, and you were you were I mean you were exposed to this rather young, right? As a, uh, on one of your trips, you're at home to, or to your, your, your parents and Mamte's home in, a, in a El Salvador. I can't remember. Is this, what, is this, was this taking place in San Salvador or not? But you're, I think you're speaking with a cousin or a family friend in El Salvador, right? And I think you're, I don't know, you're around 12 or so. And you start engaging in this, this conversation uh, about that's, that's going towards politics. Uh, your family members kind of like criticizing, uh, I think the current government, and then they basically kind of tell you to butt out, like, what do you know as an American, right? Kind of attributing you with the violence of the U.S. nation state, right? I mean, so I bring this up to say that, I mean, you had a very personal and and quite early kind of experience of having a family member in another country, right, while you're in that space, view you as part of that. Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up like any other kid calling myself American. I go to see the San Francisco Giants when Willie Mays was playing. 
you know, I would pledge allegiance to the flag and cry sometimes, whether in class or, or sing the Star Spangled Banner at the Giants games with my dad or play with G.I. Joe and other military toys and stand up for the U.S. Army that was doing righteous good in the world. And Jesus was righteous too. So this is the world that I inhabited as a child, watching the Brady Bunch along with Chespirito and other, you know, Bullwinkle and Rocky. My friends called me Mr. Peabody because I had thick glasses and I was very bookish as a child before I rebelled and said, screw all this. And so, you know, I was a good American. And I beat this guy in chess who was a university student when I was like about uh, 11 or 12. I was, I was a really good chess player, a chess champion, actually. So um, he got pissed off and he started, you know, then he starts talking about, you know, how the, tu país es lo más mierda que hay en este mundo. Your country is the biggest piece of shit in this world. And I said, what? What do you know about America? So I defended him with all the, the righteousness of G.I. Joe, Thor, and, and, and Marvel Comics and Jesus gave me because I was American. And prior to that, everybody else in the neighborhood and everybody looked at me like I was walking on air because I was American, quote unquote, right? Because that's the kind of the colonial condition that is set up for us to visit as people from the United States with the privilege of, with the, with the, with the privilege and the, 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 the decadence of U.S. citizenship. So then... The book is basically the story of how I became American. I was American. And then I kind of started waking up to what the United States was doing in El Salvador. I'm like, holy shit, they're bombing, killing children. I visited and saw things I won't repeat right now because I don't want to trigger people. But I let us say that they are among the most ignoble things there are to see on earth that I saw in places like Chalatenango during the war that were done to children and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers. Abuelas, abuelos, niños, by the hundreds, by the thousands. 80,000 80, people were killed. The United Nations produced a report that 85% of those people were killed by their own U.S.-backed government. So when I come to awaken to and this... And they were predominantly indigenous, right? They were probably they indigenous were mostly working class. Campesinos, uh, indigenous people, right? you know, poor people, poor urban workers... I mean, the death squads did... People, people that, were, that were being labeled as comunistas, right? Comunistas, whether they were nuns, priests, like Monsignor Romero, the best known, yeah. whose, crime, whose murder has still not been solved. So imagine all the anonymous people who've been killed who have no investigation of the crimes against their humanity. So, you know, I, you know, I start realizing, damn, man, uh, being American is not that cool after all. <laughs> and I decide... Not you know, I decided not just to to join the FMLN guerrillas to combat the fascist dictatorship backed by my country, the United States, but I also make the decision to stop using a term to refer to myself, American, unless it has an accent around the e on the e, or unless it's in comillas in quotes. Because America, if you look back, even in the history of the United States in the 18th century, early 18th century, in the colonial era, even people in the gringos talked about America as the Americas. Only later did people start stealing the term to refer to the country. And so I want to rescue that tradition of recognizing the continent of light that I talked about, the continent of light that Jose Marti talks about, because larger than then the Salvadoran story for me is to show kind of the poet warriorship that we're going to need to navigate apocalyptic times. And that we of that are descended of the peoples of the Americas, black, indigenous, you know, brown, A Asian, you know, we're, we're a very mixed group, even, you know, the whites of America, some of us, working peoples, we are going to play a role in history that's unique. We are, I believe, those of us who are descendants of the Americas in the United States, the northern, the northern front, the northern tip of the insurgent continent of America. In order to deal with climate change, which is a quote-unquote American development, right, because American-style capitalism is what brought climate change. It wasn't the Soviet Union. It was, you know, U.S.-style capitalism as applied by the entire world, including China 
to destroy the planet, basically, and the life-sustaining systems of the planet. So that's kind of the bigger thing for me is to, to, to reflect back to we ourselves, that we are part and we're the northern front of this insurgent continent of America, that we have a, a history of visionary insurgency, of intrepid, powerful. And I mean powerful when you're talking about overcoming the things that not just my people, but that our people in the Americas have overcome. They've overcome America without the accent. That's how badass our people are. And I want people to remember that and unforget it so that we can take on the necessary struggles that are going to dismantle the sources of climate change, of migrant destruction, of exploitation, of sexism, racism, and all the different manifestations of U.S. empire. Because the, 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 the fate of the world depends on whether or not we're able to dismantle U.S. empire at this point. And that's why I decided to come out as a former uh, urban commando with the guerrillas. It was a difficult decision for me to unforget that publicly. Because, I, you know, what if they don't give me a job anymore? What if they think I'm too radical? What if, you know, hey, can you get tenure with a, you know, an ex-guerrilla? I don't know any, but maybe. <laughs> right? You know, all these questions that the system puts you before you. But I finally said, screw that. I got to tell my truth. And this is the moment to share it in history right now where people need something like, like I like to say, we're not going to liberal progressive our way out of climate change or any other, the massive crises we're facing. We're going to need something stronger, which for me meant kind of the poet-warrior tradition where the distinction between poetry and politics, between revolution and rhythm was indistinguishable. You know, that leads me directly to essentially where, where I wanted us to wrap up and, and close this, which, I mean, I can't help but read a book like this and and or even imagine someone listening to our conversation and, and then getting the book and reading it, right? Then, you know, and seeing this as a call to action, as you've already been essentially doing, you know, in, in your last comment. Um, but for those listening or those readers that read your book and then try to think, you know, I mean, say they're, they're, whether they're Hispanic or Latino or whether they're black or indigenous, whatever they may be, right? They want to do something, right? What can they do? Well, if I could answer that, man, I'd have better book deals than what I get. I got a good deal on my book, but, <laughs> you know, but, but seriously, what can we do is a, is the question of the moment. Uh, I can just speak from my own example you know what I I've tried to do things my entire adult life. I helped refugees communities in the United States and in El Salvador and Guatemala and other countries. I've reported on things as journalists. I've taken up arms to fight fascists, dangerous, murderous, mass murdering fascists. I put my life on the line. Uh, I don't want people to do that. I don't want young people to do that. I want people to avoid that. But we're going to have to do things to confront things that confront the murderous neoliberal capitalism that is literally destroying the life-sustaining systems of the planet. So if you go to El Salvador, underneath all that violence is the destruction of the water systems, the drying of the land, the destruction of the crop cycles that makes things more tense, that creates more violence. Same thing in Juarez, where I visited. Same thing in the border with Turkey and Syria that I visited. So I think first thing, we got to educate ourselves, become conscious of the real, real enemy of the planet, which, you know, Evo Morales and all these indigenous people that I met in Bolivia said, you know, it's it's cap big capitalism that's destroying the planet. That's, that's a threatening Pachamama, right? Mother Earth. And I, I think the, the degree to which we're clear about that, then we can take a, we don't have to take on the whole monster. We can just take on our little piece. And you can, you can defeat the monster by, you know, starting your own local power structure, whether it's to, to, to you know, to, to kick out liquor stores and put in something else or to create your community garden or create an escuelita where you're developing and studying together mm -hmm. history, ideology, fascism. We have to understand fascism right now because there's a new kind of digital fascism that 
is afoot. Uh, but, you know, so we have to raise our consciousness and then take action. I mean, my own theater of, of, of battle right now is the, 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 the theater of the imagination. I think behind all these crises is the crisis of imagination that doesn't allow us to, to, to embrace emancipatory, like liberation thought. We are trapped in many ways by ideologies of enslavement of the mind, right? And you see it in schools. You see it in online and video. You see it in your families. I mean, I have to be the bad news for some of my students sometimes, but, you know, those of you that have evangelical parents that are love Donald Trump, your parents are kind of sympathizing with fascism, I hate to tell you, but their interpretation of the Bible is fascistic, right? I mean, you know, as if Jesus would support Donald Trump. Okay, well, yeah, that's really cool there. I could love with that. You know, so, so you know, to, to have a, I mean, you know, this generation has its work cut out for it, as, as do the ones that follow it. And, uh, you know, I, I, the last thing I would say, I think, go, go visionary and go hard. <laughs> go visionary and go really hard, because nothing short of that is going to help us really confront the the disasters that created by the amnesia and the forgetting of who we were. So remember who you are, go visionary, and go hard. Bueno. Well, gracias, Roberto. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this book. Uh, thank you for, for coming on New Books on Latino Studies and, and sharing uh, this with us, sharing your truth with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Thank you, David. <laughs>